because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 92. Psalm 92. And when you're there, if you're using a pew Bible or one of the thin line CSBs that line up page number with the pew Bible, what, what is that page number? 523. 523. Okay. Page 523, Psalm 92. A wonderful Psalm. All Psalms are wonderful because they're God's Word, but this has just been such a blessing to meditate on last night and to bring to you this morning. Hear God's Word from Psalm 92. And I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but it's not Psalms 92, it's Psalm 92. It's a book of Psalms, and each Psalm is a Psalm. Secondly, there are Sometimes there's an editorial note in your Bible, like mine says, God's love and faithfulness at the top in bold. That's an editor's note. But when you see the italics for Psalms like this, a Psalm, a song for the Sabbath day, that's actually from, we would consider that scriptural. So even though, so in the Hebrew, that'd be verse one. It's not verse one in English, but some of those prescripts are verses in the Hebrew Bible. And so uh, I would want you to always, when you, read, you see the italics in, on top, that's, you should read that out loud, okay? Or you should read that as part of your scripture reading. Just a little instruction there as you read through the Psalms. All right, so let's begin with Psalm 92, beginning with the prescript. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord Yahweh. And I'll say Yahweh when it has capital L-O-R-D for the name of God. It is good to give thanks to Yahweh, to sing praise to your name, Most High, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night with a ten-stringed harp and the music of a lyre. For you have made me rejoice, Yahweh, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. How magnificent are your works, Yahweh. How profound your thoughts. A stupid person doesn't know. A fool doesn't understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. But you, Lord, you, Yahweh, are exalted forever. For indeed, Yahweh, your enemies, indeed, your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with the finest oil. My eyes look at my enemies. When evildoers rise against me, my ears hear them. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of Yahweh, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare Yahweh is just. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father in heaven, we tremble before your word. Who do you look to in this world, Lord, Lord God? Who do you pay attention to with pleasure and delight? Those who are 
humble and broken in spirit and those who tremble at your word. Father, we thank you for Psalm 92. We thank you for the truths here and the windows into reality that we get to see through into who you are and how you made our lives and this world to be. We pray that as we see the glories of Jesus, that we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next, that you would increase our love for you, our gratitude. Overwhelm us, Lord, with a sense of gratitude this Thanksgiving and Christmas season, we pray. Lord, some of us, many of us are going through hard and difficult things, but we still know that you are good. Help us to taste and see that now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What was your favorite dish or dessert this past Thanksgiving weekend? You pro Pumpkin pie? Say it out loud. Yeah, say it out loud. What else? Anyone else? Stuffing. Stuffing? What'd you say? Corn? Just corn? Okay, corn. Oh, cream corn. I'm like, okay, just corn. Cool. Corn, my favorite. I love corn. Um, yeah, um, if you didn't get that dessert this weekend or that dish, I want you to think in your mind, what is that dish that you wish you would have had this past weekend that you didn't get or that dessert that you did miss? So I want you to think about it. Uh, yeah, you could say it out loud, but I want you actually to turn to the person beside you and tell them why that dish or that dessert tastes so good. I'm going to give you like 20 seconds. Tell them why it tastes so good. Why you like it. Ten more seconds. Five more seconds. Three, two, one. All right, all right, all right. Thank you. You can continue the conversation after. One of my favorite, one of my favorite dishes, and I say one of my favorite dishes, is Filipino champarado. And I have to say Filipino because my wife is Mexican and there's a different champarado for, for uh, Mexican champarado. So my, one of my favorite dishes is Filipino champarado. And it's, it's chocolate, uh, it's condensed milk with chocolate um, powder, chocolate flavoring with rice. Or these days as I'm getting older and trying to eat healthier with champarado, if you could eat healthier, with oatmeal. Okay, I, I love the chocolate taste. I love the warmth of the dish. I love the way it takes me back to my childhood and makes me imagine myself at the kitchen counter on the bar stool while my grandma is there making it in the morning. And I love the taste. It tastes amazing. Today, God wants you to taste and see goodness. But it's not the Psalm 34.8 goodness. Psalm 34.8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a direct tasting of God. This, this passage doesn't say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Look at verse 1. It is good, not, not God is good, or not the Lord is good, but it is good to what? To give thanks to the Lord. The goodness that God wants you to taste and see is the goodness of giving thanks to the Lord. It is good to give thanks to God. My main goal of this sermon would be that you would taste and see, taste and see that God is good, or not that God is good, taste and see that it is good, really good to give thanks to the Lord Jesus. I want you to taste that goodness, to see and feel that goodness, that giving thanks to the Lord Jesus 
is good. It's right. It's fitting. It's beautiful. It's fulfilling. And to be more specific to the passage, not just giving thanks, if we just finish verse one and two, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to sing praise to your name, most high. It is good to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. So let me just say it this way. It is good. It is right. It is beautiful. It is fitting. It is fulfilling to give thanks to the Lord Jesus, to sing praises to the Lord Jesus. And to look at other people and to declare the faithfulness, the covenant love of the Lord Jesus. It is good. It is right. It is fitting. It is wonderful. It is a privilege to do these things, to make this part of your life, to make this a rhythm and a habit of your life. Now let's look at this prescript because uh, not just the prescript, but verses one through three in the prescript is kind of the introduction, giving the main idea. And then verses four through 15 are the reasons why it is good to give thanks, okay? So let's just think, let's get some thoughts here from verses zero, really, the prescript to verse three. Look at, look at the prescript. A psalm, which is a song for what? For the Sabbath day. What day is the Sabbath day? In Monday through Sunday. What day is the Sabbath day? Say it out loud. What day is it? Okay, you're not that confident. Yeah, that's good. Because uh, uh, I did say Monday through Sunday. It's really Sunday through Saturday is the week. Sunday is, what do we call this day? When I, when I greet you guys, what do I say? Lord's Happy Lord's Day. And it's Lord's Day because it's the what day of the week? Resurrection. Resurrection day, but what day of the week is it? First the first day of the week. If you're reading through the New Testament, it's the first day of the week. And the Sabbath day is the? The last day of the week, okay? So if you're, if you're Jewish and you're, like, when I was in Israel, I spent a semester there. If you're thinking through the week, it's day one. They don't have Monday, you know, they don't call it Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. It's day one, two, three, four, five, six, Sabbath. One, two, three, four, five, six, Shabbat. Sabbath, the day of rest. That's the only day that actually gets a name. The other days are just numbers. Okay, so the, the seventh day is the Sabbath day, and that Sabbath day is Saturday, Number and, and what are you supposed to do on the Sabbath day? To what? Rest. To rest, right? And I was reading my devotions this past week, Numbers 29, and Numbers, th um, Numbers 29 says this, Numbers 29, 7, you are to hold a sacred assembly on the 10th day of, of this seventh month. It's not really talking about the Sabbath, but here's what it said about, which is a Sabbath practice. On this day, you are to practice self-denial. Do not do any work. That's, that's Numbers 29, 7. Just not speaking about the Sabbath, but that, that rest and if you want to know the Sabbath command, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Which of the Ten Commandments is it? Number what? Four. Four, that's right. Good. I like that quick, bold, clear, correct answer. <laughs> Fourth command, right? Remember the Sabbath. We do this in our kids, you know, when we're doing that. It's remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number four. But Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11 is this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Those are the words of Moses, the words of God through Moses. 
So what are you supposed to be doing on the Sabbath day? What were they in the old covenant, old covenant Israel? What are they supposed to be doing on the Sabbath day? They're supposed to what? Rest, that's right. Rest on the Sabbath day. It is good and fitting to rest and reflect and just remember that your life is not made up of your work. It's not made up of your tasks. It's not made up of the burdens that, that occupy you typically through the week. Life is bigger than that. This is God's world and God made you in his image. And when you rest and reflect, you reset your mind and your heart and your emotions and your mental health and your physical health and your strength and your soul. You reset it. You recalibrate it for another week of work and life in this world. The Sabbath day was a blessing to Israel, not a burden. And so on a, this is a song for a Sabbath day of rest. And on this Sabbath day of rest, here for the psalmist here originally, he says it is good. And like I said, it's fitting, it's pleasurable, it's godly, it's positive. It is life-giving to give thanks to the Lord on the Sabbath. To sing praises to the Lord on the Sabbath. To declare his faithful love in the morning and his faithfulness at night on the Sabbath. And not to just, just to do that. But to do that with a 10-stringed harp. How many strings are on the guitar? Anyone know? Six. Okay, so are we fulfilling this song? Maybe not exactly, right? And it's not exactly a harp, right? It's a, it's a, it's a guitar. But, but the, the point here is that there's, there's a musical instrument that with it, we're not just singing, we're accompanying it with music. And do you know why we do this with song? Why, why we take time to sing? Why God's people have always taken time to sing? Why, why the Psalms are songs? Because, well, think of it this way. How many of you read through a favorite book more than 10 times? Okay. Um, I've thought about, I don't know if I've read any book 10 times, except the Bible, probably. I was like, well, I guess that, that does count as a book. But um, how many of you can quote, those of you who've read a favorite book 10 times or more, how many of you can take your favorite page from that book and quote it? Quote the whole, the whole page? Like verbatim? Wow, Okay. Well, you guys are special for many reasons. <laughs> for many reasons, you're special to me. But yeah, that is special. Most people can't do that. Now, now a page in a book is, sim is, is similar to the, the amount of words on a song. How many of you can recite your favorite song word by word, like verbatim? Many of you can, right? And there's a reason for it. Because the melody, the singing, the accompaniment, it, it, it presses into your mind in a way that, and, and really into your emotions, that affects you in a different kind of way. I mean, think about the Nicene Creed. I'm hearing all of you recite the Nicene Creed, 325 AD, an ancient creed, wonderful creed, wonderful truths. And then we have a song called the Creed, right? This I believe. What's the chorus? I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the... Our God is? All right, if I started doing that with the Nicene Creed and stopped at a phrase, you'd be like, oh, I don't know what the next, I don't know what that, you, you know that because it's a song, right? That's what songs do. So, so songs more powerfully engage your emotions. They are more memorable for recollection and recitation. And they carve channels in your mind to stick with you in certain areas of your being that are not easily forgotten when you forget everything else. And when other parts of your memory and mind, and the way your brain functions even, when other parts fail, the part where a lot of the songs are does not fail. That's why I, with our kids, that's why I try to sing to them as often as possible. Um, out of 145 members, I'm probably ranked 144th in like singing ability and voice. But 
I sing to my kids anyways. I sing to my kids anyways, and I try to sing to them every night. You know, my kids are all, they're all learning piano, so even as City's starting to get better at piano, like their ears are developing, and so they get back, Abba, you're so off, you know, or whatever. And, and that's true. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sing the same song every night to carve into their minds when they're 80 years old and 90 years old on the deathbed. They won't forget, these, they won't forget this song. This will be the last song they forget in their lives. Because it's been sung by their dad every night or as, as many nights as I can to them. Because it, it carves a memory. And if there's truth in it, it, all the better, right? Because music is the soundtrack of your life. Your favorite music is the soundtrack of your life. Now, I was, I've, I've thought about this. I, I've been brought up in 90s hip-hop culture. And so there was this one rap group that just came out recently. And they just there was a video. And everything in that rapper... Like, it was so 90s that it just brought out these emotions that were just, like, I haven't felt since high school. It was just a really weird experience. And I couldn't put my finger on like, why was that so powerful to me? And it's because it, it resonated with a certain season of my life, and it brought out certain emotions from that season of my life. You know, um, I, I, I think about the songs that our teenagers are listening to today that's filling their minds, and how decades later, just like me, what I filled my mind with then, decades later, it brings out things in me that nothing else can. So I want to say to all of you, what, what songs are you filling your minds and your hearts with? And children, children, what songs do you love to sing? What are they about? Now, I don't want to say, don't go for the feeling of music. Music and the beat and the melody, it can create a feeling. And I don't want you to minimize that feeling. That's a blessing from God. Praise God for that feeling. But I want to challenge you, especially children, especially in your teen years. So I'm challenging my teens among others. Like, I, like go for the content too. Go for the content also. And maybe even primarily. Because that will guide you and that will resonate with you decades from now so go for the content of the song too especially go for the good and godly life-giving thoughts in your mind so even if even if the song is not explicitly christian what i really am saying is go for the what what you feel and think about jesus and what you think about god's goodness when you listen to the song so it could even be a song that's not explicitly christian but if it makes you think joyful worshipful thoughts of god's goodness then i would say go for it all right, that's a side note on, on music. But the point here of this text is that we are to be overwhelmingly thankful. And then when I say thankful, that means be full of thanks. We want to be grateful. That means be full of gratitude. We want to be uh, fulfilled and live from a place of fulfillment, which means we want to be filled full with a sense of goodness. And this psalm helps us to see and feel and taste the goodness of thanking God of singing to God and of declaring God. And this can apply to you even when you are in a darker and more difficult season of life, as well as those of you who are in brighter and easier seasons of life. So God gives us two reasons, two major reasons why it is good and right and fulfilling to thank God and sing to God and declare God. Okay, you ready for these two major reasons? I'll just tell you them up front. Verses four through eight. The first reason is because God made you rejoice. God has given you joy. God has made you rejoice in him. That's number one. Number two, the second reason is because God lifts you up. That's verses 
9 through the rest of the chapter, uh, through the rest of the Psalm, 9 through 15. God lifts you up, okay? So those are the two reasons why you ought to, why you ought to feel the goodness of giving thanks. Because God is the one who makes you rejoice, and God is the one who lifts you up. Now, let's think about these one at a time. First, God made you rejoice. How does God make us rejoice? In this passage, I see three ways that God makes you rejoice. First, God made, God made you rejoice by his works. Look at verses 4 and 5. God made you rejoice by his works. Verse 4 says, For you have made me rejoice, Lord. There's the point. You have made me rejoice. How? By what you've done. I will short, shout for joy. Why? Because of what? The works of your hands. That's what you've done. How magnificent are your works. How profound are your thoughts. So you don't make yourself rejoice. Who made you rejoice? God made you rejoice. The Lord made you rejoice. You don't make yourself rejoice with a deep, fulfilling joy. God did that for you. And God did, God did that with himself. So it's with the works of his hands. It's with what he's done. It's with his works. It's with his thoughts. That's four synonyms there in verses 4 and 5, all speaking about the same idea. God has made you rejoice by what he's done by the thoughts and plans that he has executed for your life. Now, what are these thoughts and plans and works that God has done for you, that God has done for his covenant people? I think there's a few possible answers. One answer, as I thought about it, was creation. God made you, and he made the world. He made the world around you. So we can thank God for his creation. A second thing that I think is a typical work of God, so you think the creation work of God, a second category is providence. God rules over everything around you. So not only did God start everything, he sustains everything. He sustains your breath, your lungs, your heart beating right now, your friendships, your, your, your life, everything around you. God sustains all of that. He's upholding all of that. So we can thank God for the work of providence. But I don't think the focus is either creation or providence. I think the focus is redemption, the redemptive work of God. Now, now if, if it is redemptive, because this is, I think it's redemptive because of verses 5 and 6, when he contrasts that with those who are, verses 6 and 7, with those who are stupid and those who are foolish. They are not redeemed. They're created. They have the providential work of God, but they don't get it. They don't get final judgment. They don't get final redemption. They don't understand that. So, the work of God in your life is the fact that God has, the work for the Israelites is that God has redeemed them. God promised to a cursed world Everyone is cursed because of sin, and God promised through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through a great nation. And so the psalmist here is like, I'm part of that great nation. I'm blessed, and through me, through this blessing of Abraham, I get to be part of a nation that blesses all the families of the earth? That's blessing. That's redemption. Okay, so the promise of blessing. Secondly, if I'm an Israelite reading the psalm or writing the psalm, not only am I part of this great nation, I have been redeemed. We were slaves where? In Egypt. And through God's mighty hand, through 10 plagues, he got us out with the Passover of a sacrifice of a lamb and the angel of death killing all the firstborn of Egypt. And then when we were stuck near a sea, God split the Red Sea open, caused the, the land to be dry immediately. Dry land doesn't happen immediately when water leaves. Cause the land to be dry, and then they walk through the Red Sea on dry land. And then he drowned the Egyptian army and redeemed, brought out of slavery, brought out of Egypt, our people. Not only promise of, of blessing, we were redeemed out of Egypt. And then thirdly, in this whole idea of redemption, is then we went to Mount Sinai, 
and he gave us a covenant through Moses called the Israeli covenant. And now we call it the old Israeli covenant. But back then it was the only Israeli covenant. God made us his holy nation, his royal priesthood. That's what he did. And God, your thoughts of not only creating us and sustaining us, but making us your nation by you planning it, by you promising it, by you redeeming us out, and then by you entering into a covenant with us as your people. You have made me rejoice at what you have done. I shout for joy at the works of your hand. How magnificent are your works of redemption, Lord. And how profound are your thoughts and plans to promise and redeem and covenant with me, with us. Now, does that apply to us today? We're not old covenant Israel. Does that apply to us today? Yes, it does. How? Well, not only because God created us, not only because God sustained you, but if you are in Christ Jesus, the Redeemer, then God has promised you his covenant love. God has redeemed you through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He's brought you not only out, not out of Egypt, but out of slavery to sin and out of death and condemnation and judgment. He has brought you out through Jesus Christ. Not only has he planned it and promised it, not only has he done it in Christ, he has entered into a covenant with you, hasn't he? That's why when we take the cup tonight at the Lord's Supper, we hold up the cup and say, Jesus said, this cup is the New covenant, the new Israeli covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And everyone who is truly in Christ, who drinks that cup, that's a symbol, a sign, and an act of worship and faith in that moment to remember that we are the new Israeli covenant people of God. If you're a Christian, that's you. That's me. And so, yes, this applies to you too. I mean, we sang about it from Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? In the pre-singing where it said, I could not love thee so blind and unfeeling, covenant promises fell not to me. I'm not supposed to be part of this covenant. They didn't fall to me. Then without warning, desire, or deserving, I found my treasure and my pleasure in thee. You made me rejoice. I found my pleasure in you. I found my treasure in you. You made me rejoice. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is my joy, the, the, the new covenant head, the head of the, the, the new covenant Israel, the head of the church, all of a sudden, this holy, righteous Jesus is now my joy? How did that happen? He made you rejoice. He made you rejoice by his works. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is what? What is God doing? It is God who is at what? Work in you. God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. God is continually working in you. God is presently working in you. God is powerfully working in you. And this is what Ross and I were meditating on last night in this uh, emergency sermon prep session. Um, God is attentively working in you. Do you know that God is attentive to you right now, you personally and you specifically? When Ross and I were talking about this last night, we were saying God couldn't be more attentive to you personally than he is right now. He couldn't be more attentive. He is full, like we even, you know, wrestle with the word full. God is fully attentive to you. 
It's like, well, how's he fully, if he's fully attending me, how is he fully attending Ross? And how is he fully attending Lane right now at the same time? How is, how is that even possible? Well, it is because God is God, right? He can give full attention to me and to you right now. But, but God is attentively working in you even now to desire and to do good, his good pleasure. That's amazing that God would, would do that for us. I want you to feel the, the goodness of the fact that the Lord is the one who works in you attentively. And you know why it's joyful for us? Because God is joyful. You know why it's joyful for us that we're saved and that God is working in us? Because God takes delight in working in us. Listen to one of the most profound, and there's no verse like this in the Bible. There's no passage like this that I know of in the Bible. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17. I want you to see not only God's work, but his joy. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17. Listen, here's the command. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Now here's why, verses 15 through 17. Yahweh has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day in the future, on that day of redemption, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. And here, here's the, the that, that, you can find those verses elsewhere. Verse 17 is what I can't find elsewhere. Verse 17 says this, Yahweh your God is among you, a warrior who saves, he will rejoice over you. And some translation says, he will sing over you with gladness. Can you hear God the Father singing? God the Son singing? God the Spirit singing over you and over his people? I don't know a verse like that. God singing over his people. I'll continue the verse. So that verse says, he will sing over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Maybe that's where the singing word is. He will delight in you with singing. But the fact that God rejoices over you with gladness and that he delights in you with singing, that's an amazing thought. This is why thankfulness should not just be words on our lip, though it should be words on our lip. It should be a, a sense of joy in the heart, a feeling, an emotion, an affection in the heart. Because God shares his heart he shares his joy. Remember why God does everything he does? I told you many sermons ago, for those of you who are here, because the Father loves the Son. The Father loves the Son in the Spirit, and he brings you into that celebration of love. This eternal triune celebration of love and goodness has been happening for all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit. What a wonderful reality. And then God chooses to take you, sinner, and bring you into that love and celebration. That's amazing. Okay, so that, that, that's the first way that God um, makes you rejoice, by his works. So the second way God makes you rejoice is by his revelation to you. Look at verses 6 through 8. Did I say I had three reasons for this first one? I only have two. This is my second one. God, God made, made you rejoice by his revelation to you, verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6. So God saves his people. Um, verse 6, a stupid person doesn't know. A fool doesn't understand this. 
Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. They will be eternally destroyed. So notice this. A stupid person does not what? No. No. I know there's more than Ross here in this room, so you guys can read it and say it out loud. A, fool, a stupid person doesn't know, and a fool does not what? Understand. So in other words, there are some people in this world who know, and there are other people who don't know. There are some people in this world who understand. There are other people in this world who don't understand, right? And the stupid person, the fool, doesn't understand that there's an eternal judgment and condemnation. That's what verse 7 says. Though evildoers sprout like grass, there's a lot of life. Though, um, though they flourish, though they flourish. You know, um, if you've been to my house, and you guys are welcome to my house on Sunday nights after evening gathering. So we just kind of have an open invitation there. So you're welcome after the evening gathering here to come bring your dinner to our house and, and eat there with us. But uh, if you look at our backyard, there's a, a lemon tree that when we were renovating and we weren't living at our house, Francis would just water it. We come back and it's just ridiculously flourishing. Like there's just lemons everywhere on everywhere. Like lemons on lemons just everywhere. And it's just ridicul ridiculously flourishing. And it looks... I mean, it, it sprouts and it's flourishing, but that tree is going to burn one day, right? I mean, when God burns up the whole, like that tree is not going to last a thousand years. Lemon trees don't last that long, right? It's not going to last that long. It flourishes for a while. It looks fruitful and it is fruitful, but it's temporary. In the end, what happens? Verse seven, the end of verse seven, even though there's flourishing, what's going to happen in the end? They will be what? Eternally what? destroyed. Though they flourish now, they don't understand that there's a judgment one day, and in that judgment, God will not let any sin slide. There will not be any, any fall, any evil thought that got away from God's omniscience and righteous justice. They will be eternally destroyed. Those apart from Christ, those apart from God will be eternally destroyed forever, and God will have them, call them to account. And this is a tragedy, right? This is a tragedy that they don't know, which is why we have missions, right? That's why we do gospelizing to non-Christians, not just to Christians. And that's why we don't just do it locally, but we want to do it globally among unreached peoples. Why? Because they don't know. And yet, are they still going to be held accountable? Yes or no? Yes. Now, some are just, I mean, in, in Romans 1, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There's a righteous accountability and they're culpable. And yet still, we want them to know. And because they don't know, they're doomed. Listen to Luke 12, 15 to 21. Here's Jesus' parable. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then Jesus told them a parable, Luke says. Here's the parable. A rich man's land was very productive, very fruitful, flourishing. He thought to himself, what should I do since I, have, I don't have anywhere to store my crops? Ah, I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones to store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, PJ. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. That's his thought. I'm flourishing. I'm good. I'm set. My retirement is set. My equity is set. My investments are set. I'm good for the rest of my life. No more financial worries. Just get to coast now. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy myself. And then let me continue on. Then Jesus says, but God said to him, you fool. You fool. 
This night, this very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you prepared, whose will they be? Not yours. That's not your crops. That's not your money. That's not your investments. That's not your security. You're dead tonight. And it is appointed for man to die once. And then comes judgment. judgment. What good are your crops then? Then Jesus says, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. The fool doesn't understand this. The stupid person doesn't know this. But you do. And that's why we should thank God. That's why you should be overwhelmed. That's why it is good to sing praises to God because he made that known to you. And not everybody knows that. Not everybody knows Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. This is the final judgment. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was open, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You're in Christ or you're out of Christ. Your name is written in the book of life in Christ or your name is not written in the book of life. You're going to the new earth forever the new Jerusalem, to reign with Jesus forever? Or you're going to burn in everlasting conscious punishment and torment forever in the lake of fire? Do you know that? Do you get that? Does that make you trust Jesus and repent and love Jesus? Not just out of fear, but out of the beauty of who he is? If you get that, then it is good to declare him to others because not everyone gets that. Taste and see that it is good, really good to give thanks to the Lord Jesus because he has made you rejoice by his work of redemption and by the fact that he has revealed to you things that he hasn't revealed to others. That's the main goal. So because God has made you rejoice in these ways, secondly, second reason why it is good for us to give thanks. Because God lifts you up, right? Because God, because God um, works for you or because God made you rejoice. And secondly, because God lifts you up, verses 9 through 15. And this is the one with three. So I mixed them up in my mind. This is the one with three, three subpoints. okay? Three ways God lifts you up. By defeating your enemies, by defeating our enemies... Uh, by, by defeating his enemies and our enemies. Number two, by anointing you to reign. And number three, by causing you to thrive. Okay? The way God lifts you up is by defeating his enemies, by anointing you to reign, and by causing you to thrive. Let's think about these. By defeating his enemies. Verse 9. And this is just verse 9 for this, this, this first one. For indeed, Yahweh, your enemies will what? will perish and all evildoers will be scattered. Now, whose enemies are these? Are these yours or God's enemies? In verse 9. 
God's enemies, right? It says, for indeed, Lord, your enemies, he's talking to God, your enemies, Lord, indeed, your enemies will perish, all evildoers will be scattered. God's enemies are our evildoers, our sinners. And what's going to happen to them? They will perish, they will be scattered, they will be defeated by Jesus because they have rejected Jesus. John 3.36, I'm going to read to you John 3.36 and Psalm chapter 2, verses Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 1 through 9. John 3.36 says this. This is what Jesus said. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So he doesn't get life. You guys know John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. Or the way you memorize it. For God so loved the world. God loved the world thus. That he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish. Now here, they will perish. The enemies will perish. But the one who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. But not them. They will perish. And notice in John 3, 36, God's wrath is not coming to them. God's wrath, what? Remains on them. It's already on them. It's already on them. Listen to Psalm 2, 1 through 9. Now you can turn there if you want because you're in Psalms. Psalm 2, 1 through 9. Here is the rejection of Jesus. Now Psalm 1 and 2, you need to keep Psalm 1 and 2 in your mind anytime you read any of the other Psalms. These are kind of the guardrails that guide you to thinking about the Psalms. And we're going to look at both in, in the sermon. But right now let's go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 1 through 9. Look at, look at God's enemies here and look at what God does to his enemies. Verses 1 through 9 of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against Yahweh and his what? Anointed, anointed one. What's another word for anointed one? Messiah. messiah. A messiah. They conspire against the Lord and his, his messiah. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us, says the world against God and the messiah. Now the one in, I love this picture, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's what God says. Verse 7, I will declare Yahweh's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. I'll give the nations to you. The ends of the earth, your possession. And here's what, here's what the Messiah is going to do. Here's what God's telling the Messiah what he's going to do. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. You see what the Lord's Messiah is going to do to his enemies? He's going to break them with an iron scepter. He's going to shatter them and crush them like pottery. That's what God's going to do to his enemies. They will perish and they'll be scattered. Now, do you know that you too were an enemy of God before? And some of you, if you're not a Christian, you're still an enemy of God now. You were hostile to God. And then for some of you, if you're a Christian, God changed you. You were once his enemy, as the song says, once your enemies, now seated at his table. Listen to Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ what? 
died for us. How much more then, since we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Now listen to verse 10. Here's a key verse. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? We are reconciled now. But before we were reconciled, we were enemies. We were ungodly. We were sinners. Or to use the, the language of, of Psalm 92, we were wicked. We were evildoers. You were an enemy of God. And you deserve to, be, to perish and to be scattered. To be crushed like pottery. And to be broken by Christ's iron scepter. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Here's the gospel if you're not a Christian. Because if you're not a Christian, that's what you deserve right now. Because you're a sinner and an evildoer, and you're, because you've rebelled against God and because you've rejected Christ, you deserve to be scattered and to perish and to be broken by the iron scepter and to be crushed like pottery by Jesus in hell forever. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel. God sent his son. The Messiah is not only the king who crushes sinners. He's the king who was crushed for sinners. He is a king who died for his people on the cross and rose from the dead so that if you repent from your sins and repent from your goodness and repent from your personal confidence in yourself and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you will be saved. Receive Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior and as your treasure and drop your weak damning treasures let go of your other goodnesses and securities and put all of it in Jesus Christ and be saved that's the first reason why uh, first way God lifts you up is by defeating our enemies and by making you one of his people the second way that God lifts you up is by anointing you to reign look at verses 10 and 11 Verse 10 and 11 says, You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with the finest of oil. My, my eyes look at my enemies. When evildoers rise against me, my ears hear them. What does this mean? What does it mean you've lifted up my horn? This is not modern Los Angeles 2022 uh, lingo. We don't talk about lifting up our horn. Lifting up your horn, the horn was a sign of power. And really, it becomes a sign of a king. And to lift up a horn for your people is to lift up a king. So listen to 1 Samuel 2.10. This is where it originates. This is Hannah, or Hannah, praying for a child when Samuel is born, right? And she's praying, and this is what she says in her prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Those who oppose Yahweh will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. We've been talking about that for these last few minutes. And then here it says, he will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his Messiah or his anointed. He will give power to his king in this judgment. He will lift up the horn, the symbol of power of his anointed one. So the lifting up of a horn is the lifting up of a king to rule and reign. So when, when the psalmist here is saying, you have lifted up my horn, it, it almost makes me think that this is a Davidic psalm. A psalm of David or David's sons. But when you look at the prescript, you have nothing about a Davidic son. So I'm like, ah, it, it, but still it could have a Davidic flavor to it, but it's not explicit there. But let's, let's go to the next image here. Like that of a wild ox, I have been anointed with the finest oil. Like that of a wild ox, this is speaking of, you know, when, when an ox needs to um, assert his supremacy against rival oxen, it will use its horns, right? So... Um, 
verse, yeah, like that of a wild ox, it will use its horns to assert its supremacy in fighting all rivals until it conquers and becomes the supreme ox. And so God has lifted up his horn like that of a wild ox to, to be supreme over all of his rival oxen. This is a, maybe alluding to, let me just read to you two passages from Numbers. Numbers 23, 22 says this, God brought them out of Egypt, speaking of Israel. He is like the horns of a wild ox for them. That's what God is like. He's fighting for them, for the supremacy. So Numbers 24, 8, God brought him, Israel, out of Egypt he is like the horns of a wild ox for them. He will feed on enemy nations and gnaw their bones. He will strike them with his arrows. You see this imagery of a wild ox? Is God fighting for his people against the nations and against the enemies so that his people and his Messiah is lifted up and exalted? So God lifts up his Messiah. That's why it says in verse 10, I have been anointed with the finest oil. Or the footnote says, you have anointed me. God is making someone his Messiah. He's anointing him as the anointed one, as the Messiah. So God lifts up his Messiah to rule and reign. God fights for his people and for his Messiah like the horns of a wild ox. And that is the means by which his Messiah and his people who are with his Messiah have supremacy over God's enemies and defeats them in battle. They're defeated by the anointed one, by the Messiah. So this obviously, obviously applies to who? Who is the Messiah that God has lifted up to crush his enemies and rule and reign. What's his name? Jesus, Jesus right? That's his name, Jesus. This is speaking of Jesus. And it's like Psalm 2. Today, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. God has declared him king, son, Messiah, ruler over all his enemies. And so we worship the son. We praise Jesus. We recognize Jesus as the king. But notice my point here was not merely that God uh, anoints the Messiah to reign. What was my point here? God lifts who up? You up. By anointing who to reign? You to reign. Wait, hold on. Am I reigning? Is PJ going to reign or is Jesus going to reign? Is Ben Bratcher going to reign or is Jesus going to reign? Is BBC going to reign or is Jesus going to reign? What's the answer? Both. Now who's supreme? Jesus or his people? Jesus is supreme over his people. Yet they're going to reign what? Together, right? Because we're united to Christ, we were united to him in his death, right? We're united to him in his burial. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were raised with Christ. And even Ephesians 2, 7 says, not only are we raised with Christ, we are actually seated with Christ right now in the heavenly places, in exaltation, in reigning. And one day, Revelation 22, 5, when we're on this new earth, we will reign with him how long? forever and ever you are kings and queens or you're all kings you're all we're all vice kings jesus is the king we're vice kings right we will reign with him forever and ever we are a royal priesthood not just a priesthood we are a royal priesthood we're not just priests we are a kingdom of priests so that's, a, that's, that's the first, that's the second one is that God lifts you up. And now let's go to the third, third way that God lifts you up. Not just by making you reign, but lastly, and maybe even most encouragingly, I found my, my most encouragement from this last point. Um, letter C in my notes. God lifts you up by making you thrive. I love this. God lifts you up by making you thrive. Verses 12 through 15. Look at verse 12. The righteous... And this word is used twice 
I think. It's used twice in this passage, 12 and 13. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of Yahweh, they thrive in the courts of our God. What are we doing? We're thriving. We're growing. We're being established and stabilizing. What psalm does this remind you of? Did any psalm come to your mind when I read 12 and 13? That you're going to thrive and grow like a tree. You're going to be planted in the house of the Lord. What psalm does this remind you of? Anyone? Psalm 1. What is Psalm 1? I'm going to turn my Bible there. Psalm 1. Yeah, it does remind you of Psalm 1. It should. Why? I already previewed to you that we're going to go back to Psalm, right? To Psalm 1. But look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in Yahweh's instruction. And on his instruction, he meditates what? Day and night. Day and night. He is like a tree planted. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, by flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Streams of water. Flourishing trees. Stable and growing and bearing fruit. Does that remind you of any other picture in the Bible? Streams of water. Rivers of water. Trees. Fruitful. What? The Garden of Eden, right? Rivers flowing through the Garden of Eden. And then the new Jerusalem, the new, the new city in Revelation 21, 22. There's a river of, of life flowing through the middle of the street of the city. And the tree of life is on both sides, bearing its 12 kinds of fruit for all the seasons, for all the months of the year. Rivers, trees, planted, fruitfulness. This image is taught from Genesis to Psalm 1 to the last chapter of the Bible. This is an image of the righteous, that they grow. And here's the point, brothers and sisters. God causes you to grow in him as his instruction and as his message and in his gospel. Indeed, as Jesus himself, the word in flesh is your meditation day and night. You are watered and rooted and established and God causes you to grow. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 92. Verse 13. You're planted. Now here it's planted next to the water in, in Psalm 1. Here it's planted where? In the house of the Lord. Where are they thriving? In verse 13, where are they thriving? In the courts of our God. Okay, this is not by water. This is in the temple of God, in the courts of God. Where, where was that in the Old Testament? Where were the courts of God? In the very beginning, it was at, first it was the Garden of Eden. Then it was the tabernacle. It was a tent. After the tent, it was what? A temple. That's where I'm in my devotion. Solomon, well, I'm just done with Solomon, but Solomon builds a temple. That's the courts of God. Then that temple is destroyed. What comes after that? Where's the temple now? After the, after the destruction, where does it come up again? In who? Jesus. Jesus first. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus comes and says, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up again. Jesus says, I am the temple. I am the courts of God. I am the place of God. Then Jesus leaves. He ascends to heaven. Where's the temple now on earth? It's gone. Is it gone? No. Ten days after Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit descends and dwells in whom? The church. Now, the church is the temple of God. The church is the sanctuary. The people are the sanctuary. God's people are the courts of God. And so where does God plant us? Where? Look, Psalm 92, verse 13. Planted where? Verse 13. Planted where? In the what? House of the Lord. Where is that today? Where are you planted? 
You're planted in 145 members of BBC if you're a Christian. That's, what, that's how this applies today. You know how you thrive and grow? Your life is planted in a local church. And this church is the temple of God. It's the courts of God. And does water flow in this temple? Does living water flow in a temple, a local church? Yes, it does. The Holy Spirit living in us, the gospel, the word in us as we preach Christ and as we gospelize and share takeaways and burdens and blessings and pray and sing and confess sin to each other and rebuke each other and correct each other and train each other in righteousness. As the word of God comes through us, living water is flowing and Christians are growing and thriving because God is the one who planted you in his courts. And one day that court will be the new heavens and new earth. Okay, now the most encouraging part, verse 14 and 15. If that's not already encouraging. Verses 14 and 15. They will still bear fruit in what? I love that. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare that, and they will declare, Yahweh is just. Yahweh is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in Yahweh. That's what they will declare. God is just. God is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in God. Jesus is just. Jesus is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in the Lord Jesus. They will bear the fruit of declaring his justice, his stability, and his righteousness. So by God's grace and kindness, I was able to call some of our older members. Do you know our oldest member in our church? Do you know how old? Do you know who our oldest member is and how old he is? Merle Williams. We call him Pastor Merle around here. And Joe Helen's our second oldest member, five years younger. Joe Helen Williams. Do you know how old Pastor Merle is? 101. And Joe Helen is 97 years old. And I called them this week and was able to speak to their daughter. And they're doing alive and well. And even in their old age, they can bear fruit. The text says here, they can still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare that the Lord is just. He is my rock. There's no unrighteousness in, in him. I, I called another couple in our church who's in their late 60s, 67-year-olds, uh, John and Annette Hale. And um, Annette, you know, we've been praying for her very specifically for a particular medical situation, which was seemed to be resolved. Now it's back. And so now she's working through it again. It's growing slow, but she's, it's back. And, and, and in this, when I call her, if you've talked to Inet, you could already hear her voice, right? God is good. I can't even, I'm not even trying to pursue it, but God is good. The Lord is so good to me. God has been nothing but good to me. Praise his name. She's just, just overflowing with praises to God in light of a medical challenge, a difficult medical challenge. And you know what she's doing as she's talking to me about that? She's declaring that God is just, that he is her rock, and that there is no what? Unrighteousness in him. And you know what that says? Well, you know what this text is saying? That she is bearing what? Fruit. It bore fruit to me. I got to enjoy some of that fruit. Now I'm passing that fruit on to you. Hopefully you get to enjoy some of Inette's fruit that she's bearing by the way she and John, both of them, speak of their trials. And they, the way they speak of God in their trials, that, that they do bear fruit. Now, some of you are discouraged, and I get it. I mean, we are discouraged. We are living in difficult, we, many of us are in difficult seasons, and so many of us are discouraged. And so here's my application to you. And it's what we sang. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is your rock. He is just. 
There is no unrighteousness in him. Let me just read to you the third verse of the song. Do you guys like that song? The last preparation song we sang? Aaron, uh, they learned it recently and Aaron wanted us to sing it and it was a, a great choice. I'll just read you the third verse on page three of your bulletin. Look to Jesus, you who anguish. Come and take your refuge here. Though in darkness you still languish, Christ has promised he is near. He will lead you through the night. By his light, the way is shown till your faith is turned to sight and you reach your heavenly home. So look to Jesus, you who anguish, come and take your refuge here. We're going to sing that song tonight in our evening gathering. So come back to sing it with us. But I want you to see, like not only is Jesus walking with you, what I loved about this passage is that you will be fruitful even in your suffering. This is the first command of the whole Bible. Be fruitful, multiply, what else? Fill the earth and what? Subdue it. And you could even be fruitful in your old age. Sarah gave birth when she was 90 years old. So just in that kind of Genesis 20, that Genesis picture, she's bearing the fruit. In, in Genesis, the fruit is kind of first of all seen as, as giving birth, right? Having kids being multiplying. But the point here is that even if you don't give birth at 90 years old, even if you're not able to carry a child to term, even if you can't get pregnant, even if you're old and you're 101, you can still be fruitful, multiply. Not only can you, this passage is saying, God has planted you by streams of water. You will bear fruit. You will multiply. You will fill the earth with God's presence. And he will be glorified in your life. I mean, Sammy said it in our prayer phrase. He said, we are blessed in, unex God, you blessed us in unexpected ways. And then Sammy said this, which is so striking. And you give us exactly what we need. That's a powerful statement. Exactly what we need? That's what God's saying in this passage. I planted you. I'm watering you. I will cause you to thrive exactly with what you need in the exact way you need to thrive for the exact season that you're in right now. And in the next exact season, he'll give you exactly what you need then to thrive there. So to summarize, it is good to give thanks to God because he made you rejoice by making his grace known to you by his work of redemption. It's good to give thanks to God because he lifts you up by conquering our enemies, even the enemy of death and sin. He makes us reign with him and he causes us to thrive and grow and bear fruit. Brothers and sisters, do you see, do you feel that it is good and right and fitting and fulfilling for you to praise God and thank God? Let me close with some application here. And no, um, yeah, just, I'm going to close the application and just pray. So no other ending except just let me apply it to a few groups and then we're praying. Christian, joyfully thank God. Sing loudly to him. Memorize songs and sing them often. Sing them terribly. If you sing terribly, sing terribly. Sing loudly anyways. Declare to others the faithful love and faithfulness of God. Church family, thank you. And then uh, exhortation. Number one, church family, thank you. Well, I should say thank many of you. Say this is not to all of you, sorry. Thank many of you for coming 
at 10 o'clock, or at least by 10.15. I understand preparation songs are preparation songs. But thank you for coming at 10.15 and not just coming right before the sermon. You know, the pastors have played with, and we're getting pretty close to um, deciding to start our Sunday morning at 10.15 with the sermon. And just start preaching right away, just for everyone who comes late. And just be like, well, you're, you know, we start at 10.15, you know, prep, preparation, and then 10.15 we start. So we've, we've toyed with it, and let that be a, a fair, like, kind of warning shot to you. That one day soon, we may just start at 10.15 with the sermon, for those of you who come late. But I want to thank those of you who are here by 10.15, and ready to exhort, and ready to sing praises to him, number one. And two, you're ready to declare to other people the faithful love of God. Thank you for those who come later too, but I want to thank you specifically for those of you who consistently and habitually come at 10.15, because you are feeding us and you're watering us. And so I want to thank you for doing that. That is not unnoticed by God. Now, for the church family as a whole, my exhortation is to prioritize Sundays. Take time to rest and take time to reflect and take time to fill your mind with the declarations of God's truth. And side, side application here, um, come on Sunday nights if you can. At least once a month. If you never come on Sunday nights, come once a month. Come on Sunday nights. Set aside your whole day for reflecting on God. And reflect on God with, with the church family. All right? If you're not a Christian, I just want to ask you, what do you delight in? What is fulfilling for you? What is beautiful and what is captivating for you? You give thanks for something. I just think the most, the, 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 the goodest thing in the world, if I could make up a world, right? The thing that is most good to give thanks for is God himself. And I encourage you to have him. My last application is to children. Children, push through your boredom with Jesus. Is Jesus boring? Sermons are boring. I remember when I was a kid. I preached long, I know that. And my, I grew up in a church that preached an hour. An hour. Um, I was like, man, when is this church gathering going to stop so I can play with my friends, you know? But here's what I want to tell you, kids. Push through being bored with Jesus. Do you know that adults get bored too? I'm scared to ask for hands right now. <laughs> but here, here, let me say a few things here. With God, boredom comes from blindness. Excitement comes from experiencing God. Singing, singing, real singing, singing comes from seeing and savoring Jesus. And as John Piper said, the key to praising Christ is prizing Christ. So kids, push through your boredom. And I, I know it took me, I, I remember, I still remember when I started enjoying Sunday gatherings, like the full whole gathering. It was like, I was like 13 and I was like, that was awesome. And I was like, whoa, this is weird. Like something changes in me. And all of a sudden I felt like the whole thing was wonderful and around 13 years old. So kids, especially if you're under 13 or you haven't hit that point yet, Keep learning anyways. Just keep paying attention. Just keep trying. Just keep at it. Keep praying and asking God. And whatever little joys you get, whatever little moments of takeaways you get, just take that and keep holding on to it. And God will make it grow. God will give you fruit. And you will see and savor his goodness and burst forth with praise and gratitude. Let us all experience God's goodness by pushing ourselves to give thanks because it is good and fitting to give thanks to the Lord to sing praises to his name and to declare his faithfulness in the morning and his faithful love on Sabbath or Lord's Day nights. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us this Thanksgiving season 
that it is good to give thanks to you. Lord, you are so good to even command us to such a good and life-giving command to give thanks and to sing and to declare you is joy beyond measure. What a privilege that all of your commands are good and not burdensome, even the hard ones. We trust you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.